from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Maya, Galen, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Marie, Elena, Alethea, Bree, John, Katoris, Nanette, Rachel, Sam, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, Stacy, and Holly. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. Today's podcast will be on Robert Black. Now, this one comes with my famous disclaimer, disclaimer, because it involves children. So if you want to skip this one because it's particularly heinous, there will be no hard feelings. I promise. He was born on April 21st, 1947 in Grangemouth, Stirlingshire, Scotland. I hope I didn't butcher that. So let's get into some history for that time. One of the biggest news stories in 1947 was the alleged UFO crash near Roswell, New Mexico that summer. Roswell Army Airfield Public Information Officer Walter Hott in Roswell, New Mexico, issued a press release stating that personnel from the field's 509th Bomb Group had recovered a crashed, quote, flying disc from a ranch near Roswell, but the United States Armed Forces insisted it was a high-altitude surveillance balloon. It has been a source of conspiracy ever since. The Marshall Plan was created, stating the United States would assist Europe in rebuilding after World War II. Also this year, with the end of World War II, began the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. The United Nations voted in favor of the creation of an independent Jewish state of Israel. India and Pakistan gained independence from Great Britain. The United Kingdom nationalized its coal mines beginning in January. There was an earthquake in the Chilean Andes, killing hundreds of people. 
Other famous people born in 1947 were Sir Elton John, David Letterman, O.J. Simpson, Tom Clancy, and David Bowie. So this was the atmosphere that Robert was born into. His mother was Jesse Hunter Black, but the father remained unknown. It was said that his mother had refused to put the father's name on the birth certificate and had actually intended on putting him up for adoption before she immigrated down to Australia. She was trying to get as far away from the stigma of being an unwed mother as possible, but for whatever reason, she wound up leaving him in the foster system. He would never meet his mother after. At six months old, Robert was housed with Jack and Margaret Tulip, a middle-aged couple from the Scottish Highlands with plenty of experience as foster parents. Now, one source indicated that Jack and Margaret were suspected of beating little Robert, that the neighbors reported to the authorities that the little boy was, quote, covered in suspicious-looking bruises, including on his face and limbs. When asked about this later, Robert stated that he wasn't sure where he got the bruises, but could have possibly been from getting into fights with other children. And even though Margaret demanded he bathe, he simply would not keep up with any level of personal hygiene. Therefore, the other kids at school called him, quote, Smelly Bobby Tulip, because at that time he was using his foster parents' last name. At the tender age of five years old, he and another girl around that age engaged in the you show me yours and I'll show you mine game that many children do when discovering there are physical differences between them. But this would leave a mark on his psyche that he would later report and he stated it was then that he became sort of obsessed with the private and more intimate parts of the human body. And this morphed into how, from this very young age, he began to believe he had been born the wrong sex. Also, at five years old, his foster father, Jack, died. Robert displayed aggressive behavior on occasion and showed antisocial tendencies, which didn't help him socially either. He really didn't have any friends. By the age of eight, it was reported that he was already inserting things into his rectum regularly, and he would continue to do this well into his adulthood. Robert wet the bed far later into his childhood than what is considered normal, and he later said that his foster mother would beat and berate him each time he had an accident. Margaret also used to apparently lock him in the house as a punishment for bad behavior and also take his clothes off from the waist down and beat him with a belt. He began having recurring nightmares about a big hairy monster in a basement flooded with water. At seven years old, he was caught lying down on the floor of a school dance and looking up girls' dresses. Also around this age, and for reasons that quite frankly make me question the sanity of the parents, Robert was left to babysit an infant. Once he was alone with her, he took her diaper off to stare at her genitalia. Another disturbing story stated that he would put his own feces in his hands 
rub them together and smell them or smear it on surfaces. He also preferred to wear girls' swimsuits for what it's worth. When he was 10 years old, Margaret died, and though he had always felt unwanted and abandoned, her death intensified these feelings. A local couple did offer to take him in, but instead he was sent to the Reading Children's Home near Falfirk, which was not far from where he was born. It is at this point where Robert goes from what is generally considered an abnormal fascination with sexually themed thoughts about himself and also inflicted upon himself to beginning to reach out to do things to others. In less than a year, Robert would attempt his first sexual assault. He grabbed a young girl, pulled her into a public restroom, and began fondling her. He was known to expose himself to girls, too. Another instance where he sexually assaulted a girl was when he was 12 years old. He said, quote, Me and two other boys went into a field with a girl the same age. We took her knickers off, lifted her skirt, and all tried to put our penises in. End quote. Now, thankfully, they were not able to penetrate her, so they fondled her instead. Now, somehow his new foster mother found out about this and demanded Robert be removed from the home. Robert was then placed in Red House Care Home, which was designed to be a much more strict environment, and it was also only for boys. During his time there, Robert said that a male staff member sexually abused him for three years. But also during this time, he went to school and became quite interested in football and swimming, though he still didn't really have many friends at all. All things considered, he did pretty well academically. At just 15 years old, he left the Red House Care Home and with the help of government assistance, he found housing, a room for rent in a boy's home just outside of Glasgow. He found a job as a delivery boy for a local butcher. Robert later said that, while out making deliveries, if he came upon a house with a young girl inside, home alone, he would molest them. He guessed that he did this between 30 to 40 little girls. However, none of these incidences were reported to the authorities. So when Robert was 16 years old, he came upon a seven-year-old girl at a park who was playing alone and lured her into an abandoned building, telling her there were kittens inside. He began strangling her until she became unconscious, and then he pleasured himself over the body. Other sources state that he raped her and that she had been found wandering the streets, crying, confused, and bleeding, so take that information as you will. Soon after, he was arrested for this and convicted of lewd and libidinous behavior with a young girl. He was given a psychological evaluation where they determined that the incident had been isolated and there was no need for further treatment, that he would not reoffend and was basically freed with no real consequences. And this was basically his childhood. There's a bit to unpack, so let's get started. There is no father to look at to see if there might have been any traits he inherited, unfortunately. 
and we know basically nothing about his biological mother. We do know that she desperately wanted to give her infant son away and flee the country, and it was said so that she could escape the stigma of being an unwed mother. Now, this is mere speculation on my part, but it seems like her desperation to get away was enhanced. Was she trying to get away from Robert's father? Was it just the reputation she would have had for getting pregnant when she wasn't married? It's just interesting to me that she wanted to go clear to the opposite hemisphere of the planet to get out of being a mother. Again, that's just me. There was a period from his birth until he was six months old where he was not adopted, that he was not even with his foster parents, Jack and Tulip. A lot could have happened in that time period as well. Was he being properly cared for? We've talked at length about how very important attachment is when it comes to infants as early as right after birth. I have to question whether or not he was held enough. Did he get enough attention, eye contact, bonding, and needs being met? And these are very valid questions when it comes to issues that might begin to manifest later in life. Just think about Peter Woodcock and his early life. I've done a podcast on him, and I'll link it in the notes if you want to listen, but the similarities up to a point are striking. Attachment disorders in children are the result of tragic circumstances that may involve trauma, abuse, neglect, or deep loss, and so on. Very familiar to me. Children suffering from this developmental disorder of attachment development are challenged with everyday life, often resorting to negative behaviors like manipulation, isolation, aggression, hyperactivity, lying, stealing, and harming self and others. Others may experience PTSD, flashbacks, and night terrors. In each case, the child suffers and causes great distress for caretakers and peers. The RAD or DSED diagnosis may be accompanied by other conditions such as ADD, ADHD, OCD, ODD, depression, and conduct disorder. And this should sound familiar with regards to Robert. It was reported by neighbors that Robert had pretty bad bruising on his limbs and face from what most people suspect came from his aging foster parents and at the very least Margaret abusing him. She beat him and berated him for wetting the bed, which was something he absolutely could not control. He did suffer with horrible nightmares. He was indeed described as aggressive and he caused suffering to himself and other children. Part of trying to maintain a modicum of control was her insistence on him being bathed and clean and his refusal to do it. And a lot of children who have very controlling parents will seem to pick one thing in particular that they feel they can keep control over and use that as their way of being able to keep some control over their own selves, if that makes sense. And while children wondering what another child has down there compared to them isn't uncommon at all, his curiosity, though, went far beyond that. And in later years, he fully admitted to the fact that he had become obsessed with orifices and genitalia and all of that from the time he was five years old. He felt 
at least in his youth, that he had been born the wrong gender. I don't particularly agree with him possibly having body dysmorphia as more him just being fascinated with the difference between what he was born with versus what girls have. By the tender age of 11, before he was even beginning the process of puberty, he was already committing sexual assault on young girls. Sexual behavior that is developmentally inappropriate or coercive, or that potentially causes emotional or physical pain, requires further assessment for exposure to family violence, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and neglect. In an article in American Family Physician, written by Dr. Nancy Kellogg, quote, Sexual behavior problems have been associated with other emotional and behavioral disorders in childhood. In a clinical sample of children, 6 to 12 years of age, with sexual behavior problems, the most common comorbid diagnosis were conduct disorder, 76%, followed by attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, 40%, and oppositional defiance disorder, 27%. These externalizing behavior problems have been strongly associated with sexual behavioral problems in childhood, suggesting that in some instances, sexual behavior problems are better understood and treated by addressing the ideology of externalizing behaviors. Family stress and dysfunction, including violence, abuse, and neglect, can cause or exacerbate externalizing behaviors and sexual behavior problems in children. The number and frequency of sexual behaviors in children increase with the number of family stresses, including violence between parents, incarceration, deaths of family members, and illnesses requiring hospitalization. In a study of 201 children with sexual behavioral problems, 48% were sexually abused, 32% were physically abused, 35% were emotionally abused, and 16% were neglected. One meta-analysis found that 28% of children who were sexually abused developed sexual behavior problems with the highest prevalence in the youngest age groups. Sexual abuse involving a father figure, perpetrator, and penetrative acts is more likely to result in sexually aggressive behavior in the child. Externalizing and sexual behavior problems in children are common reasons why foster care placements for children who are abused or neglected fail or are difficult to maintain. Speaking of his self-satisfaction of the unconscious girl's body, Later psychologists theorized that the successful action at this point would have entered his internal fantasy dialogue, so associating an unconscious or dead child with stimulation to ejaculation, but not incorporating a conscious involved the second person in his sexual behavior. So wrap your mind around that for a moment. Now, there isn't just any way to know if he was being sexually abused at any time before he went to his first foster family. And we also will most likely never know if he suffered any of this with the tulips. But I feel pretty strongly that he wasn't displaying these behaviors out of a comfortable, secure, and consistently loving early childhood. So let's get back to the story. 
Once Robert was released, he quickly moved to Grangemouth and rented a room from an elderly couple. He began working for a builder's supply company and joined a local youth club where he met a young lady and they began dating. Eventually, Robert asked her to marry him, but she broke things off. Her chief complaint being the strange sexual demands he had. This would be the closest thing to something you might call a normal life he would ever have. Not long after, it was discovered that he had been molesting the granddaughter of the older couple that he had been renting his room from, but they didn't turn him in. There was no arrest. They just ordered him out of the house. So he moved into another room from a couple, and as predicted, Robert began molesting their seven-year-old daughter. The parents called the police, and eventually Robert was sentenced to one year of Borstal Training, which is a youth detention center in the United Kingdom. He was, by this point, 20 years old. Once released, he left Scotland and moved south to London. He again rented a room in a building where every tenant would share a bathroom, nearly like a dorm. For the next couple of years, he worked odd jobs to make ends meet. One such job was a swimming pool attendant until a girl reported him for touching her and he was promptly fired. But this would be a slightly more quiet time for Robert. He spent a great deal of his free time doing two things playing darts and pubs, which he actually became quite talented at, and collecting child pornography, both in magazine and photographic forms. And then he began to collect videos that depicted very graphic child sexual abuse. Robert himself was actually pretty good at photography. Too bad he used that talent to make inappropriate pictures of children. But he didn't really develop any known close friendships, still being described as a loner. In 1972, the now 25-year-old Robert met a Scottish couple, and they allowed him to move into their attic. They would later describe him as a reclusive but responsible tenant who never gave them any cause for concern other than his personal hygiene, which was rancid at best. It was during this time that Robert bought a white van so that he could drive for a living. And as such things go, this helped him learn all of the roads in and out of the areas he delivered to, including the more secluded back roads. But he also drove over the road long distances, including all the way back up to Scotland and back and even as far as Ireland. And as these things go, the fantasy life of being a pedophile in his head became not enough to satisfy his urges. The pornographic magazines and pictures he collected soon became not enough. Videos held him for a bit, and then that wasn't enough. He began fantasizing about having an actual child to himself to play with. It was then that Robert decided to act. In August 1981, nine-year-old Jennifer's mother watched her young daughter get on her bike and begin to ride down to a friend's house. She never arrived. A few hours later, her bicycle was found not far from her home, and it had been covered in branches and leaves. The kickstand was out, which led police to believe she had stopped, propped her bike up, and approached her abductor, who we now know was Robert. Six days later, 
two fishermen found her body in a reservoir 16 miles away. She had been strangled with a ligature and ultimately drowned. Autopsy records indicated she had been sexually abused, and there was evidence of that on her body and her underwear. In late July 1982, a year after Jennifer's death, 11-year-old Susan, who lived near the English-Scottish border, was walking home from playing tennis and was last seen crossing a bridge. Robert abducted her. Her body was found by a truck driver two weeks later. She still had her clothes on her, except her underwear, which was found folded neatly under her head. She had been tied up and gagged. Unfortunately, the cause of her death could not be determined because her remains were so badly decomposed. A year later, in the late afternoon hours of July 1983, five-year-old Carolyn was playing outside her house in an Edinburgh suburb. Once it was discovered she was missing, her family searched all around the neighborhood for her, asking if anyone had seen her a boy said that he had seen little Caroline speaking with a man who we now know was Robert, and they alerted the police. Now, this search was, at that time, the largest in Scottish history. Around 2,000 volunteers, as well as 50 members of the Royal Scottish Infantry Line searched everywhere. Two days later, Caroline's disappearance made the news in the entire UK, other known pedophiles anywhere near that area were questioned, but all were eliminated as suspects. Some witnesses stated that they had seen a rather dirty-looking man wearing horn-rimmed glasses watching the little girl play, then followed her to a nearby fairground. Some witnesses saw the man sitting with the little girl on a bench and heard him offer to pay for her to ride on a carousel, which she did. We know Robert kept Caroline in his van for at least 24 hours when comparing with his work schedule. But unfortunately, nearly two weeks later, her body was found nearly 310 miles from her home and also only about 24 miles from where Susan's body had been found. Again, the exact cause of death couldn't be determined because of the advanced state of decomposition but she had had her clothes removed, indicating sexual assault. During all of this, his employer stated he was a great employee. Some of the drivers they had with spouses and children would complain about the distance they were expected to drive, but Robert never did. The only thing they commented on was how he would drastically change his appearance. Sometimes he would have a scruffy face, other times he'd be clean shaven, Sometimes he'd let his hair grow a bit wild, then he would shave his head bald. He had many different pairs of glasses, only it would later turn out that he never wore them unless he was going to take a child. So what was Robert doing in the time between his murders? He later confessed to psychologists that he would sit in the back of his van, masturbating to the memories of what he had done. He said he kept young girls' swimming suits in the back of his van as well for stimulation. He admitted that the fantasies he acted out in his mind were compulsive, and he obsessed over them, how he wanted to take the girls, abuse them, 
kill them, how he would escape. But the most compulsive part of the entire thing, the part he actually cared about the most, was being alone with the bodies. Many police forces came together to create a task force to catch the man who was taking and murdering these young girls. Keep in mind that the Yorkshire Ripper investigation was still largely in people's minds and had been criticized. Then, in March of 1986, 10-year-old Sarah left her home to walk to the corner store and buy a loaf of bread. The owner of the shop remembered Sarah coming into the store and buying bread, as well as two bags of chips. She also remembered a balding man quickly enter the shop and then leave after Sarah exited the store. After that, she was missing. A search was launched involving over 100 police officers. Witnesses described a white Ford Transit van in the area. Three weeks went by before Sarah's remains were discovered floating in the River Trent some 71 miles from her home. She was partially dressed and gagged. The autopsy stated that she had died about five to eight hours after being abducted. She had injuries to her face, her forehead, and her neck, most likely causing her to be unconscious and then drowning in the river. It was discovered that she had been the victim of a violent and prolonged sexual assault. Her internal injuries, both genitals and the backside, were described as, quote, simply terrible. The investigators contacted the FBI and requested they put together a psychological profile, which described the perpetrator as a white male, closer to 40 years old, with an unkempt appearance. They surmised he would have quit school early, lived alone in a rental in a lower-class neighborhood. They indicated he most likely kept souvenirs of his victims and also most likely engaged in necrophilia after his victims died. Two years after Robert killed Sarah, he tried to kidnap 15-year-old Teresa, who was quite small and looked younger than her age. She had been hanging out with her boyfriend before deciding to walk home when a van pulled up beside her. The man got out, raised the hood of the van, and asked her if she knew how to fix engines. She replied that she could not, and she began to walk faster. Robert grabbed her up in a bear hug, wrestled her into the van, but she was able to grasp his genitalia and squeezed so hard he loosened his grip on her. She bit him on the arm and started screaming for her mother. Teresa's boyfriend heard the ruckus and came running to her aid. Robert let her go, got in his van, and sped off. This was reported to the police. So in July 1990, a 53-year-old retired postal worker was mowing his front yard when he saw a van slow down to a stop across the road. He watched the driver get out and wash his windshield just as his neighbor's six-year-old daughter Mandy began to walk by. He stopped mowing for a bit and witnessed Robert attempting to kidnap the little girl. The man made a note of the license plate number and called the police. In no time, six police officers descended upon the neighborhood, but 
The retired man caught sight of the van again and exclaimed, that's him, that's the same van. An officer got in front of the van, forcing Robert to stop, and he was pulled from the driver's seat. Now get this. One of the police officers there was that little girl's father. He was the one that opened the back of the van and saw movement in a sleeping bag. He opened it to find his own daughter inside, her wrists tied behind her back and her legs tied together. She had been gagged and there was a hood over her head. She was examined by a doctor who stated she had been subjected to serious sexual assault. Robert told the police, quote, It was a rush of blood to the head. I have always liked little girls since I was a lad. I tied her up because I wanted to keep her until I had dropped a parcel off. I was going to let her go. He stated that he had only interfered with her a little. That was a disgusting lie. In his van, they found more restraining items such as rope, tape, and hoods, a Polaroid camera, a lot of little girl's clothing, a mattress, and what was described as, quote, a selection of sexual aids. The police searched his rented room and found a photo album of him with items such as a telephone handset or a wine bottle inserted into his bottom. They found a large collection of child pornography, including 58 videos, which were horrifically graphic, that he later said he bought in Central Europe. When evaluated by psychologists, it's interesting that he described what he had done as if it were a play. The curtain opens and the performance begins, he had said. The actions take place and then the curtain closes. But it was evident he dissociated from the kidnappings and murder and subsequent disposal of the bodies. Again, he was just after possessing the bodies. He talked about his past, certain parts he felt like talking about, and spoke about how horribly everyone had treated him throughout his whole life. So the trial ensued, and he was found guilty on all charges and given a life sentence for each charge. In January 2016, the then 68-year-old Robert died from a heart attack. No one came to his funeral. He was cremated and his ashes scattered at sea. Now, it is strongly believed that Robert had many more victims, and there are other cases that match his M.O. pretty well, and not just in England or Scotland or even in Ireland, but Germany, the Netherlands, and even France but he never admitted to his crimes. So guys, what do you think? Do you think he was born broken? Do you think something from his infancy and childhood caused him to be this way? To be a child rapist and murderer? Perhaps a combination of both? Tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. But most importantly, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys, and have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer and... 
whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. <laughs> 